The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look at Revelation. That's where we are. If you are just visiting or haven't been here in a while, we looking at this great book, the book of Revelation, the conclusion to the Bible and the conclusion to world history and the conclusion to God's plan. There are practical and relevant things that pertain to right now, but for the most part, the bulk of the information in the book of Revelation is how the world ends according to God's plan and according to reality. It's very exciting, really. And so, and also, the book of Revelation promises a blessing for anyone who reads it, understands it, heeds it, applies it to their life. So we expect that God is going to bless us individually and also corporately as we study the book of Revelation together. So we are not afraid of this book at all. We are enthusiastically embarking upon the study of it. We are now in chapter 3, going through the seven churches of Asia Minor that John the Apostle knew these churches, probably pastored the church at Ephesus, the first one mentioned in chapter 2. And in about 90 A.D., he's writing this information that the Lord Jesus Christ gave him to give to these churches, pertinent information, but also that would be information that goes beyond the borders of Asia Minor of these churches to actually a message to all the churches throughout the ages, even 2,000 years later. The content of these messages applies to GBF, Grace Bible Fellowship, and to you if you're a Christian, and also to you if you are not a believer. Let's go ahead and look at the church at Philadelphia because that's where we are today. Follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 2, 7 through 13. <clears throat> and here's the Lord Jesus talking to this church, starting at verse 7. And to the messenger, chapter 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 7. Let you flip the page. And here's the Lord Jesus talking to this church and to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write he who is holy who is true who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens says this I know your deeds behold I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a universal call. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches, to all the churches, not just Philadelphia. It means if you have a spiritual sensitivity to listen to spiritual truth and you care about spiritual truth, then we need to pay heed. That's why this message is for us and not just a church that was 
in existence 2,000 years ago. Before we get into the details of the church at Philadelphia, I want to lay some groundwork here, and it's very important. I haven't done this yet with the book of Revelation, but it's a priority because the book of Revelation is a certain kind of literature in the Bible called prophecy, and there are implications of that. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, John says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy or this prophecy. He's talking about this book. It is prophetic literature, which is different than maybe the letter Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy. That's an epistle. It had prophetic elements here and there, but for the most part it was an epistle. It was a letter. And John, and John is saying, well, Revelation is, is a little different. It is a prophecy. So that's chapter 1, verse 3. But also look at the very end of the Revelation, Revelation 22, starting at verse 18. Just one word in verse 18 and a word in verse 19 I want to highlight. And these are like bookends on the book of Revelation that you need to keep in mind. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Revelation is prophecy. And then at the end of the book, last chapter, last word, he reminds us once again so we don't forget, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation is prophecy. It is prophetic literature. Verse 19, if anyone does it, uh, takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, he can go back to Revelation chapter 3. What that means and the reason it's significant is when John says that Revelation is prophecy, he puts it in the same category as the great Old Testament prophetic books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel. There was something special and distinct about those books, those books of prophecy, because books of prophecy, technically speaking, uh, have certain characteristics about them all throughout in terms of a theme. And usually some of the themes that are prominent are that they talk about the end of the age, the end of the world, the, the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. So they're eschatological in perspective. They talk about the end times. That's eschatology, the last things, the end times, future things. And so that is totally true of the book of Revelation. This is prophetic. So all throughout just about in every single chapter, no, in, in fact, in every single chapter of Revelation, there is a, a look to the future to the end of the age, to the coming of Jesus Christ, to the wrapping up of world history and even taking us to the brink of eternity for all time. And that's true even in Revelation 2 and 3 as he's talking to these historical churches that existed 2,000 years ago. Every single one of these churches just about has a prophetic component or element to it. Some of them I haven't highlighted really or significantly up to this point. And we've just kind of gone by and it's these, this repeated refrain by Jesus to the churches where he gives either a blessing or a warning and says, uh, otherwise, or, or just take heed because I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. He keeps saying that. That is a reference to the coming of Christ. First and foremost, a coming of Christ at the end of the age. It is eschatological. It is prophetic. It is at the end of history. That reference. That's the main nuance to it. And in terms of things of the end of the age, just comes to full fruition in the letter to the book of Philadelphia. And before we get to the details of it, I do want to show you something very important. If you go back to uh, keep a finger in Matthew 24, and this will actually help you in Bible study of, of prophecy or just the nature of Scripture, because Scripture, you have to remember, it is a divine book. It is a supernatural book. There is so much there. It can't be exhausted in terms of uh, its content because it, it's, these are words that come from the eternal mind of Almighty God who is infinite and eternal. 
He exhausts our resources and our inability to totally comprehend everything about God. And there's some of that characteristic that finds itself in Scripture, that it is a divine book that comes from this eternal, transcendent God. But in Matthew, actually Matthew 25, keep a finger there, and then put another finger back at Isaiah. I'm going to refer, keep, uh, stay in Matthew, and then go to Isaiah 61. Three passages we're going to look at. And I don't even know in what order yet. But they go together. Isaiah 61 at the end of the book. Matthew 25. And the first one we're going to look at, hopefully you have a lot of fingers, is Luke chapter 4. Luke, I can do it. I'm ready to go. Luke chapter 4. So listen to this. Luke chapter 4. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 4. He just went into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. He was baptized by John the Baptist. And he's ready to begin his ministry. And one of the first things that happened is, and this all happened, he, grew, he was born and raised in Galilee and Nazareth. So when he gets baptized and after his temptation, he comes immediately to his hometown. Nazareth in Galilee, where he grew up. Everybody knew him. He was a familiar face. They didn't regard him as this Messiah. They just thought, oh, that's Jesus the carpenter's son. He's nothing special. He hadn't ever done a miracle in 30 years of his life. Just another man as far as they were concerned. Apparently, he did have some rabbinic training because he was considered a rabbi and was allowed to teach in the synagogues on a regular basis. And so that's where we go at the very beginning of his ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 I'll start at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about Him spread through all the surrounding district as He began to teach. Verse 15, He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all, wooed by all, awed by all because of His authoritative, unique teaching. Didn't mean everybody was a believer. Verse 16, we know that for a fact because of what happens in verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. His hometown. You would think having home court advantage would be a blessing. Well, it's not goes into his hometown, goes into the synagogue of his hometown. These people knew him inside and out, so they thought. And as was his custom, Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, and he stood up to read the Scriptures, which was what they did. Sat up to read the Scripture, sat down to teach the Scripture. Verse 17, he took the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, where you have your finger and we're going to look at in just a second took the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written. And here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 61 beginning at verse 1. Very important. Jesus reads from Isaiah. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set Free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. What he just read in our Bibles is Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, then he stopped. Jesus did not read the second part of verse 2 in Isaiah 61. After reading the first part of verse 2, he says this, verse 20, he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, Jesus sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, today this this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Wow. The Jews have been waiting 800 years for the prophecies of Isaiah, mostly referring to the end of the age and the, the coming of the kingdom of God, the establishment of God's kingdom literally on the earth. And Jesus reads a portion of that prophecy and He says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled because of Me in your presence. Well, they didn't believe it because in verse 22 it says, And uh, all were speaking well of Him and wondering at the gracious words which He was failing were falling from his lips and they were saying, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter that we saw grow up? He is claiming to be the Messiah to fulfill what Isaiah had predicted. Who does he think he is? So they go from being in awe of him to becoming angry at him and they almost kill him. They try to kill him and they rush him out of the synagogue and try to literally take his life and he was able to escape and get away. That's how Jesus began his ministry. They didn't believe it. Go to Isaiah 61. Let's look at the passage Jesus quoted and said, Today it is fulfilled. Isaiah 61 says this, Like I said, over 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah was a prophet, wrote a huge book, and here's what he said in verses 1 and part of verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Because the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, has anointed me. The anointed one. That's what Messiah means. Mashiach, the anointed one, to bring good news, the gospel to the afflicted. That's why Jesus came the first time. He, God the Father, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, spiritually speaking, to proclaim liberty, to preach good news, liberty, freedom from sin, to captives, those who are held captive by their sin, and freedom to prisoners, spiritually speaking. Verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. And Jesus said, Today this is fulfilled. It is significant that Jesus didn't read the second part of verse 2 because it says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Because that did not happen when Jesus came the first time. The content of the second part of verse 2 happens in the book of Revelation chapter 6 through 19. That is the theme of Revelation, the day of the vengeance of our God. Revelation 6 all the way to verse 19. Jesus knew that was yet future. Here's the significant point. In Isaiah, you can literally write this in with a pen. It might be helpful. That between the first part of verse 2 and the second part of verse 2 in Isaiah chapter 61, over 2,000 years transpires in terms of its fulfillment. 2,000 years. Now, we knew that because we know that because we have the book, the New Testament. We can look back in hindsight. And this is a characteristic of prophetic literature. God is eternal. And sometimes gaps of time are really not significant to Him. He just knows this is His plan and this is the order in which the plan is going to happen. He didn't tell anybody back then that, by the way, there's 2,000 years that are going to happen at least between the first part of verse 2 and the second part of verse 2. Because here's what the Jews of the Old Testament didn't understand. They believed in the coming of the Messiah, as we do. But they only believed in one coming of the Messiah. That's it. This was news to the Jews. In the Old Testament, if you were just to read it, understanding what the Jews understood, they believed in the coming of the Messiah, but they never saw a first coming of the Messiah and a second coming of the Messiah like we believe. That's why Jews think we are crazy today, unbelieving Jews, Christians. What do you mean there's two comings? Where's that coming from? That's not in the Old Testament because it's not. This 2,000-year gap between a first coming of the Messiah and second coming of the Messiah is not clearly stated and delineated in the Old Testament. It is called a mystery. 
New information revealed only by Jesus to the apostles and written down in Scripture. And so in hindsight, we can see the mystery, this 2,000-year gap that is so typical in prophetic literature. And I can just show you that over and over and over again in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. The reason that is important is because there are these same huge gaps of time, these prophetic gaps that also occur in the book of Revelation. Because it is prophetic literature where Jesus is talking to the church at Philadelphia but he's also talking to the church that exists 2,000 years later and then beyond and into the tribulation at the end of the age. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 2. Go to Matthew now, if your finger is still there, in Matthew 25. The entire content of Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is, he is, this is a week before he's going to die and be buried and leave. He's spending two chapters to prepare his apostles for his departure. They are confused. Jesus keeps saying that He's leaving, but He hasn't established the kingdom literally on earth like He said He was. You can't leave now. There's too much work undone. According to the Old Testament Scriptures, they were confused. So Jesus came to explain to them the significance of His departure and that it's not just one coming of the Messiah, but two comings of the Messiah. If you look up here, uh, this would be a good way to understand it. The Jews, this is how they saw the two comings of the Messiah. Uh, They saw it from this perspective. Here's the first coming of the Messiah and here's the second coming of the Messiah. Like this. Our perspective is this. Here's the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. And we just see this huge gap of time. They did not have that perspective. But we have the New Testament. We have a different perspective of that great reality. So in all of 24 and 25, Jesus explains very carefully the end times. When He's going to return. Details of the tribulation what the kingdom is going to be like, and the end of the age, and even signs of when it is going to happen. And then in chapter 25, he does something very interesting. He lets them know, and he wants to highlight, I am leaving, but I will return someday. But believers who remain waiting for Christ need to live in light of His coming. Believers waiting for Christ to return need to live in light of His coming with the proper perspective and attitude. And they kept asking him, so Lord, when are you going to return? When is it going to happen? And he said, really, the timing is none of your business. That is hidden in the mind of God, he said in Acts chapter 1. But here are some things you should be making a priority as you wait for the coming of Christ. And so he uses two parables in Matthew 25. The first parable is the parable of the ten virgins that we saw a little bit last week. And and Jesus has one main point with the parable of the ten virgins in light of His coming. And the point is, be ready. My coming, you don't know what it is, but it is imminent. It will be sudden, it will be immediate. That is His point. In that parable, that is the main truth of that parable, as he says in verse 10, be ready. Which is an exhortation for every believer. We need to live in the light of his imminent coming. It could happen at any time. We don't know the day or the hour. Futile to predict it. Disobedient to try to predict it. Be ready. Then he balances that exhortation with just the perfect balance. It is absolutely beautiful. Be ready. It could happen at any time. But the, the other side of the story is, but it could happen after a long period of time. So here's one of the greatest secrets that Jesus said and revealed in the New Testament about His coming that many people overlook or have never heard of before. And it's a parable starting in verse 14 of chapter 25. And I'm just going to give you the secret of it. By the way, the theme or the point of these parables is verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. That's the point. Be ready when it happens. It could be imminent. Or, to balance that, look at verse 19 of chapter 25. He begins this parable and he says this. Now, after a long time, 
And before that, he was talking about how he is the master. He's going to leave his servants. He's going to entrust them to be stewards of all that he has given them. And he is gone. The Lord Jesus, in other words, he's saying, I am leaving. I'm leaving you here on earth. I'm going back to heaven. Well, how long are you going to be gone, Jesus? Verse 19. Now, after a long time, they didn't get that. You know, Jesus was telling the apostles and the church, I could be gone for a very, very, very long time. And John the Apostle was one of the people sitting there listening to Jesus say that. And here John writes the book of Revelation. It has been 40 years since Jesus has been gone. Do you think John the Apostle thought 40 years was a long time? Absolutely. Man, it's got to be soon. Maybe it's next week because it's, it's been 40 years. That is a long time. Little did John know. Man, 40 years, 400 years, maybe 1,400 years. It's been, And plus, it's 2,000 years, Jesus told us. It could be a really, really long time. So that's that needs to be the Christian perspective regarding the coming of Christ. Is live in expectancy. Jesus could return at any time. As a matter of fact, His favorite phrase is not, I will come. He says, I am coming. That is imminence. It's present tense. And it means that He's already in the process of returning. I am coming. And we need to live in light of His imminent return. It could happen at any time. And at the same time, we need to be balanced and not get in our pajamas and get on the roof and give up on life and say, come and get me, Jesus. You're probably coming tonight or tomorrow. No. That's the balance of that parable. You know what? It could be a long time. But the point is, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know the day or the hour. Just be faithful. Trust God. He knows the day and the hour. In the meantime, be a faithful steward on the behalf of Christ. But the certainty of His coming and reward for His people is absolutely guaranteed. That is good news. So let's go ahead and look at the church at Philadelphia because they're going to get some good news regarding the coming of Christ, whether it's soon or a long time. Four truths I want to highlight on the book of or the church at Philadelphia. And let's go ahead and look at it. Starting at verse 7 of chapter 3 is the congregation. Seven churches he deals with. This is number 6. The congregation is the church in Philadelphia. A little bit about the church in Philadelphia. It's the word title is uh, the Greek words are the meaning of Philadelphia is brotherly love. Phileo, Phila, Delphos is brother. It's the city of brotherly love, and they characterize that actually. They were a, a good church, but that was their name. It's the sixth church out of the seven that Paul or John is addressing. This church uh, we dealt with Sardis last week, and like we said, there was a logical flow of these churches and the messages. Uh, the seven messengers probably entered from Patmos by the sea, landed in the port of Ephesus, and then they were going to circle this postal route uh, in a logical sequence on this main freeway, highway road, postal road, that covered all seven of these cities that were on the postal road. And Philadelphia was a city that sat on this imperial postal road that was in place. So it was a significant city because people were coming and going and to and fro all the time from both directions it was considered Philadelphia was the gateway to the east to Rome because it was strategically located on this road. And so they finally arrived to the church at Philadelphia as they continue to go down south and to the east. And the next one will be Laodicea. And so here they are at the church at Philadelphia, 28 miles southeast of Sardis, the last church we talked about. Uh, just a significant thing historically about the location of the church in Philadelphia. It is a church, I mean, it's a city today. It's got a weird name that I can't even pronounce in Asia Minor or Turkey. 
but it still exists there. People live there, and there's even believers and a church there to this day, unlike Ephesus, who did not repent and is in ruins. But as a city, it sits on a fault line where earthquakes have happened all throughout history of its history, a couple devastating ones in 17 B.C. and A.D. 37, 40 years after John is writing this, and the city never really recovered from that earthquake when John wrote. It destroyed ten cities in the area. Philadelphia was one of those, totally decimated. Some of the people came back and lived in the city proper trying to rebuild. Some of them didn't. They just hung out on the fringes and the periphery of the city. So that city, historically speaking, was unstable. There was instability in the city in terms of its very geography and where you lived. That is important in this letter and the promise that Jesus makes because He promises to this church, to these faithful Christians, He promises them future eternal stability, unlike the city in which they live. We don't know where the church started. Philadelphia is not mentioned in the book of Acts where Paul plants all of his churches, 15 plus churches. Uh, But we do know that for at least two years, according to Acts 19.10, it says that Paul preached the word of the Lord uh, all throughout Asia. Everybody in Asia heard, including all the Jews and all the Greeks. And as a result of Paul's ministry, church, Churches were planted in that area, and no doubt Philadelphia was one of those churches. So this church could be anywhere up to three decades old, maybe even older. A couple other things about the church at Philadelphia and the city. Uh, It was a small church. Most commentators say that this was the smallest of the seven churches because it says it in the letter. Uh, If you look at verse 8, it says you have a little power. You have a tiny bit of power. In other words, you're, you're small and insignificant. You're a small church, a dinky church, in terms of numbers and facility And human resources, that's comforting because that's GBF. We really are. We're a small church. We we have a little power. I feel vulnerable as a church in many ways because of our little power, humanly speaking, and that was the church at Philadelphia. Uh, And probably the most distinctive thing about the church at Philadelphia is Jesus does not rebuke this church. They are not reprimanded for anything. They don't have any sins that are standing out that Christ has to address. It's nothing but commendation. He blesses them. So there are only two of the seven churches that didn't get rebuked. Philadelphia and Smyrna were the only ones that didn't get rebuked for some gross, egregious sin. And what was in common about Smyrna and Philadelphia? They were both persecuted churches. Isn't that significant? Persecuted churches. Persecution will purify a church like nothing else because all the phonies leave the church. I'm not going to suffer and die for Jesus. No way. I'm out of here. So they were purified through persecution and suffering, and we're going to see that, but it was an obedient church. Another just practical point that I've already made, and you you may hear this from people all the time, where do you go to church? Oh, I go here, you know, I've been around, went here, went there, uh, you know, and I've just decided and learned that I can't find the perfect church. Well, and then they'll say, but you know, there is no perfect church, so I'm just going to stay here even though it's got all of its problems and compromise and whatever else. Uh, It's true, there is no perfect church. And like they say, if you think there's a perfect church and you join it, you just messed it up. No longer perfect. But there is no perfect church. That's true. But you don't. But they're not all equally imperfect. That is very important. Because Philadelphia, yeah, it wasn't a perfect church. Jesus doesn't care if it's a perfect church or not. That is not his gauge or his assessment. It's not an issue of, is it a perfect church? Is, is, is it an obedient church? Is it a healthy church? Is it a biblical church? Is it a church that honors Christ and His Word? That's what matters. So that's kind of a false gauge. Well, there's no perfect church. No, there are uh, no perfect churches, but there are healthy, obedient, faithful, biblical churches. That is a huge difference. 
And that's what the church of Philadelphia was. It was a faithful, obedient, pure, healthy church. And is only blessed. Not condemned. Uh, just a word about the Lord Jesus Christ. As He addresses every one of these churches, He identifies Himself of who He is and His attributes and characteristics about Him because those attributes give Him the authority to speak with authority over a church. He is the only one who is Lord of the church. And Jesus has the right to speak authoritatively to the church of Philadelphia by virtue of who He is that we see in verse 7. Well, what is Jesus? He says, I am holy. The one who is holy, the one who is true, says this. Jesus is holy. That refers to God. That God is sinless, perfect, all-glorious, deity, God. That's what holy is. That's who Jesus is. He also says that He is true. He's not a phony. He has integrity. He is the real thing. In contrast to all the false gods that were proliferated all over these cities. Philadelphia, Ephesus, Greek gods, Roman gods, false gods. Hence, Jesus is the true God. So he calls himself holy and true, which is significant because in Revelation 6.10, the martyrs cry out as they're praying to the God in heaven, O Lord, holy and true. God of heaven is holy and true. Jesus is holy and true. Jesus is God. That's the point. And as a result, he has the authority to speak to this church and any church and any Christian. And he does. So let's go on to point number two, the proclamation after the congregation. Now the proclamation, the content of what he says to this church. What is the message that Philadelphia needed to hear from Jesus? Like I said, he didn't rebuke them. It's a blessed thing. But the content is in verse 8 and 9. And I wrapped it up under two themes, and that is persecution and justice. He addresses the fact that they are a persecuted church. Persecution. They're being persecuted by unbelievers at a very intense level. Uh, that is not unaware of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will protect them and He's even going to reward them. He's going to bring justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave room for the vengeance of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. He will set things right. And that's what He promises to do with this great church, this obedient church. First, I do want to acknowledge what they were doing good and faithful. Uh, verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. I know your works. I know what you're doing as a church. I know how you occupy your time. I know what your priorities are. And it is good. It's faithful. You're doing the right thing. Preaching the word. A praying church. Celebrating the ordinances. Uh, obedient interaction and fellowship of the saints. Sharing with the community and evangelizing. All these things that a church should be doing as defined by Acts chapter 2. This is what the church at Philadelphia was. They had good works. They had it right. They had the priorities right. They had the balance right. They're commended for this. These are the things the church should be doing. You can't lose your focus and your priority. But they were also blessed for something specific in the midst of ongoing ministry as a church. And that's at the end of verse 8. Uh, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. You have a little power. You're a small church. That phrase there when he says... Uh, I have put you before you an open door. That goes back to verse 7 where Jesus says about Himself, holy, true. Jesus also said that He has the key of David. Uh, that's an Old Testament reference. A key is to have authority. A key is that which unlocks. A key is the one who opens the door. A key is the one, the authority that allows entrance into something. The key of David is the right to enter the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. So Jesus has the authority of the king, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one who decides 
who enters the kingdom of God or heaven or salvation. Jesus is in charge. Ultimately, He's the sovereign one. And the reason He points this out is because these Gentiles who were believers at the church in Philadelphia, it was primarily a Gentile Greek area, and there were only a few Jewish people in the area, and apparently a lot of the Jews in the area rejected Christianity, and they were hostile to Christianity. So much so that they were persecuting this little church of believing Jesus-following Greeks and Gentiles, which probably constitutes most of our congregation, non-Jewish believing Gentiles. And the Jews in that area mocked these believing Philadelphian Christians because they were Greeks, they were Gentiles, they were not Jews. And according to their understanding, these unbelieving Jews, they thought they were the only ones that had a corner on truth regarding the Old Testament. Gentiles were not allowed to be a part of the Old Testament covenant especially if you've never been circumcised and all the rites and those kind of things. So they were very exclusive. This myopic, narrow-minded attitude of unbelieving Jews that excluded and literally persecuted Greeks and Gentiles who said they had a claim on knowing God of the Old Testament. That infuriated unbelieving Jews. We see this in the book of Acts. We see this with Jesus Christ. But with the Apostle Paul in particular because Paul was preaching to Gentiles telling them they also can be saved by the Old Testament God, Yahweh. And that infuriated the unbelieving Jews so much that they would chase Paul from city to city trying to shut him up, trying to kill him. As a matter of fact, it was this that got Paul eventually arrested and beheaded. What was his crime? He supposedly took a Greek into the temple area and defiled it because these unbelieving Jews absolutely despised Gentiles. That's what's going on here in Philadelphia. And they're saying... No, you can't get into the kingdom of God because you're not a Jew. You don't have the Old Testament. You aren't circumcised. You're not a literal blood descendant of Abraham, father of the Jews. No way. And so these powerful, small community of Jews in Philadelphia were persecuting Gentile Christians. And that's why Jesus says, I have put before you an open door. You know what? I have the keys to the kingdom of God. Don't let these persecuting, unbelieving, hard-hearted Jews keep you from believing the gospel and entering the kingdom of God. Because I am the one in charge. I am the sovereign one. I am the one that determines who enters and who does not. So it's a source of personal encouragement on the part of Jesus that He was in charge of who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't. Hence His words in verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door into the kingdom which no one can shut. These persecuting Jews, they can't keep you out if you're faithful and believe in the gospel. You have a little power. You're a faithful church even though you're small. And here's the key at the end of verse 8. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Actually, at the end of verse 8, if you wanted, depending upon your translation, one translation accurately says not you have not denied my name, but literally it's you did not deny my name. That is the literal translation, the verb there. You did not deny my name. Aorist tense. A past action that was very specific that happened at some time in the past to these believers at Philadelphia. They didn't deny the name of Christ and they kept the word of Christ when apparently they were overcome with some kind of hostile persecution where they could have caved and given in and abandoned their faith in Christ or at least compromised the truth of the word of God and they didn't. That's what he's talking about. So that's what they're being commended for. They were a persecuted church. They cranked up the heat. The unbelieving Jews did at some point. We don't know what it was, whether it was physical persecution, maybe it was economic in the area in which they lived, maybe it was religious, and forbade them from going into the local synagogue, which they had the authority to do. Maybe it was they were slandering the name of Christians all over the area. 
and undermining the reputation of Christians because that's what happened. We know that from other churches and times in history where people would accuse Christians of believing in all kinds of gross immorality and weird false gods and turning the Rome against Christians. Maybe that's what they were doing. But they were being persecuted and they're commended. The Lord Jesus says, "For you know what? In the midst of this hot persecution, you kept my word. You kept biblical integrity. You didn't abandon the word of God and the revelation of God. You stayed true to the word of God. You didn't compromise in the face of hostility. And you didn't deny my name. You weren't ashamed of the name of Christ. It's a great thing. What a wonderful church. So that was the persecution they were undergoing. And so now Jesus is going to bless them and let them know, you know what, there's going to be justice for that. For your faithfulness, you're going to be rewarded. Here's the amazing practical reward of justice is verse 9. Behold. Behold means pay attention, wake up. This is an amazing promise. And he says behold two times. Behold. Get this is what he's saying. Middle of verse 9 too. Get that you aren't going to believe this. Christians at Philadelphia, listen to what I'm going to do. That's what behold means. Get this. Behold. And this is actually a bad translation where uh, some translations say, Behold, I will make those. It's not make. That's not the Greek verb. That's used in the middle of verse 9. The Greek word used, it's a very simple word. It says, Behold, I will give. That's the word. Give. Ditto me. Present tense. Literally. I am giving. That is a huge difference between make. Or the NSB says, I will cause. The verb is not cause. It's give. There is a translation that says give. And they do so accurately. So that's what it should be. And it makes a huge difference in trying to understand what's going on here. Literally it says this, Behold, I will give some of the synagogue of Satan. The amazing thing, Jesus is going to take some of these hostile, violent, unbelieving, hard-hearted Jews who are persecuting the Christians at Philadelphia. He's going to take some of those unbelieving Jews and I'm going to give them to the church at Philadelphia. I'm going to give them to your congregation. Wow. What do you mean you're going to give them to the congregation? Well, he explains that the rest of verse 9. Behold, I'm going to give some of the, the synagogue of Satan. These are unbelieving Jews. They are Jews by blood, but they don't believe in Christ. They've rejected their own Messiah. As a result, they are pawns of Satan. And I'm going to give some of these people who've been persecuting you, who say they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Behold, I will make them come to you and they will bow down at your feet. Literally, the Greek word bow down is another bad translation. Literally. And several translations say this, like the ASV. I will make them come and worship at your feet. I will make them come and worship by your feet. Proskuneo is the normal New Testament word that always means worship. Here is the promise. Some of, these Christ, some of these Jews who have been persecuting you, I'm going to actually give some of them to you. And they're going to come to your congregation and they're going to bow down and they are going to worship in your midst. What was Jesus saying? Some of these people who are trying to kill you, they are going to get saved. They're going to get saved and I'm going to turn their life around. The perfect example of this was the Apostle Paul, who was the most notorious persecutor of the church in the history of the world, according to Paul himself, was Paul himself, a Jew, an unbelieving Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who tormented the church, killed Christians, and Christ turned his life around and saved him, and he became probably the greatest Christian we've ever known. So there was a precedent for that that they could identify with. Oh, just like the Apostle Paul. We don't need to fear these men. We need to pray for their salvation and their softening. What an attitude change that should create upon believers. Anybody that's an unbeliever, mean, hard, persecuting, violent, derogatory, nags at you, weighs you down that you want to avoid, 
Write their name down on a piece of paper and now they have become a prayer request. Dear God, soften their heart. Make them see the Gospel. Remove their satanic blindness. Help them to receive the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Save them. Change their life. They aren't deserving and neither was I. And you saved me. And if you saved me, you can save them as well. Are you praying like that for unbelievers you know? Family members that are hostile? Co-workers that are hostile? Neighbors that are hostile? Famous people who hate Christianity who are hostile? We need to be praying for the same thing. The softening of their heart. According to God's sovereign word, He has the keys. He can change a heart, can He? He can change it for eternity. Jesus has the authority to do that. That's what's going on here regarding the justice that Jesus was going to bring. That is absolutely amazing. And it should help us have a new perspective of how we view unbelievers, especially hardened ones. As long as they can breathe in this life, there's a possibility that God might save them, even to the 11th hour. And that is the proclamation. Let's go on to point number three, the commendation. In verse 10. And this is that prophetic element that I was laying the groundwork for. This has immediate implications for the church at Philadelphia. This has long-term implications for every church that ever exists all throughout history going on in the time of the tribulation at the end of the world. The commendation. Perseverance and protection. Perseverance and protection. And that's what God promises this great faithful little church because of their perseverance, because they didn't deny the name of Christ. Verse 10 says, because you've kept the Word, you kept the Word of God. You kept the word of my perseverance. You didn't abandon my name. You were not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. And because of your obedience, I'm going to give you this amazing, wonderful promise. And here it is. This is one of the greatest verses, I think, in the New Testament. Jesus says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. I will also keep you from the hour of trial. The hour of trial is a definitive period of time in God's time clock. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Which hour? That hour which is about to come upon notice. The entire world. This is not a a localized event that happened only in Philadelphia. An insignificant, puny little city. There is a time of trial that is coming upon the entire world. It's going to be worldwide. It's going to be devastating. It is going to be global. It was predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus reiterated it in the New Testament. All this is, this is just another name. The hour of trial, the hour of testing. Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble. Uh, Jesus Himself called it the great tribulation. John calls it the great tribulation. Daniel called it the tribulation. That's what it is. I talk to some Christians and say, well, I don't believe in the tribulation. Really? Why? Well, I don't know. That's the way I was raised. That's what I was told. It's a book I read. Really? Wow. And then I'll read a verse out of the Bible that says there's going to be a great tribulation. Now what do you think? Oh, I guess I believe in the tribulation. It's in the Bible. That is the only reason I believe in the Great Tribulation is because it's in the Bible. Some like R.C. Sproul would try to tell us, well, this tribulation actually that Jesus was talking about and that John was talking about actually happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and they sacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. That's what this is talking about. It already happened. The Great Tribulation that was going to come upon the entire world already happened in Jerusalem in a localized manner where the rest of the world wasn't even aware it was happening in 70 A.D. No, that is not what he's talking about. By the way, John wrote the book of Revelation in 95 A.D. How in the world can this be referring to an event that happened 20 years ago in the past? That is very confusing and misleading. But it's clear. This is not a a time frame that is unknown. Just a couple of verses I put down there for you. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, For then, in the future, and He's talking about the time of the end of the age, For then there will be a great tribulation. Jesus said that. A great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world, that is creation, nor ever shall be. 
Universal, devastating, global, unprecedented, unparalleled. This has not happened yet. It is yet future. And it's all described in Revelation chapter 4 through 19. We're going to see that. This is the time of the tribulation. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 said this about it. And there will be a time of distress. A time of distress. A time of trial, literally. Such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Israel, the Jews, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued during the tribulation at the end of the age. And it is given in detail in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that. So what is the promise here that Jesus is giving? Jesus is promising the Christians at Philadelphia that they are going to be saved from the tribulation. And it doesn't mean they're going to be preserved within the midst of the tribulation while God is raining fire down from heaven upon the earth because all that's happening during the tribulation are judgments from God. He's doing it. He is doing it. We're going to see that clearly. So God is not thrilled about punishing His own blessed church. It's not safety within the tribulation. Notice, and here's the key phrase to understand it. Verse 10. Jesus says, I personally will keep you believers, you church, and I believe all the churches of all the ages because at the end of verse 13 it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a promise to all churches. I will keep you, not from the trial, I will keep you from the hour of trial. We are kept from the time of the trial. We are kept from the period of the trial. That, it's an entire period of time. Seven years is defined by Daniel and the book of Revelation. Literally, Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep the church, I'm going to keep Christians free from the seven-year tribulation. Literally, that's what He's talking about. So you must be a pre-tribber. Absolutely. Why? Because it's in the Bible. Plain as day. It's not local. It didn't already happen. It's unprecedented and it is coming upon the entire world and jesus said we won't even be there where are we going to be well that's why scott read first thessalonians 4 we will be raptured snatched up i don't believe in a rapture why not it's in first thessalonians 4 17 jesus will come he's not coming to earth he will come in the clouds and he will suck us up rapture snatch is the greek word snatch us up to meet him in the air is where we meet him that's what jesus said and we will go back to heaven john 14 wonderful promise and that is a promise to anybody who is a true Christian in a true church. And by the way, the last note I want to make is that the tribulation that we're going to see in Revelation 4 through 19 is for the sole purpose, for the most part, God wants to judge and punish and test earth dwellers. Those are unbelievers. And I put some notes there on for you. That is the purpose. It says uh, the tribulation is coming to test those, to punish those, to try those who dwell upon the earth. Those who dwell upon the earth. Literally in the Greek text, that is a participle. It is a technical phrase. It comes from prophetic literature in the Old Testament. Hosea 4.1, and it's used 11 times in the book of Revelation consistently, 100% of the time referring to those who hate God, who worship the beast, who take the mark of the beast, and who hate Christ. That is the purpose of the tribulation, to test, to try, to punish earth dwellers, the enemies of God. And we're going to see that as we go through. Good news. If you're a believer and you're a part of the true church, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rapture His church, preserve them, save them from the hour of trial that's coming upon the entire world. Just another reason to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we might be rescued, not just from spiritual sin, but also from physical judgments of God. It takes us to point number four after the commendation, and that is the invitation. These universal invitations that he ends all of these letters with to the overcomers, which we've seen that overcomers are Christians. Overcomers are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Conquerors. Maybe as you came in, you got a little silver thing. Oh, there's mine. 
What is it? Well, the main thing I want to highlight on there is it's got the, the name of God. It's the Lord. L-O-R-D. L-O-R-D is actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Y-H-W-H, which is God's personal name. Yahweh. That's God's personal name in the Old Testament. And the New Testament writers give that name to Jesus Himself. Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus' personal name. He is one with the Father. And in this promise to the church at Philadelphia, three times Jesus promises something about the name. The name of God. The name of Jesus. And let's look at that promise. And this is true for every Christian. Keeping in mind that the, you know, the, the Christians at Philadelphia had very unpredictable, unstable lives because of the city in which they lived that was prone to earthquakes and devastation and also because of the people they were surrounded by who persecuted them and made their life uneasy every day. There was no, they just lacked stability. And no doubt these Jews were saying, you aren't even legitimate citizens of Rome and you aren't legitimate citizens of the Old Testament covenant. So they were questioning and even undermining their very identity. And that's why Jesus comes back with this, hey, I'm going to tell you what your true, permanent, eternal identity is that you can rest secured in from Me, the One who has the keys and all authority. So He says to overcomers, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of My God. Wow! This is true of every Christian. If you're a Christian, someday God is going to make you a pillar in His temple. What is a temple? It's figurative speaking here because there is no temple in the eternal heaven. We know that later in Revelation. Temple refers to the immediate presence of God. That's where God God resides in the temple. In heaven, it's not a physical building. It is His literal, immediate presence. Wow. The promise is that every believer will be allowed to be in the immediate presence of God because we don't have that now. We are in the presence of a cursed earth and a cursed body. The promise is immediate presence of God and a pillar in the temple. What is a pillar? How long does a pillar stay with the temple? Forever. When does it leave after all the guests are dismissed out of the courtyard? The pillar doesn't go anywhere. It stays there, about face, looking at the throne. And that's what God is saying every believer is. You will be permanently, eternally, unmovably in the immediate presence of God forever in the heavenly temple. You will never be kicked out. You're a citizen forever. He goes on and accentuates this great truth. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, God's temple, and you will not go out from it anymore. You're not going to be kicked out from an earthquake. You're not going to be kicked out from persecution of those who don't like you. Furthermore, I will write upon him the name of my God. What do you put your name on? Things that belong to you. When you write your name on something that shows ownership, dominance, sovereignty, protection. There's a lot of implications of when you write your name on something. It belongs to me, and this is what God is saying. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, I am writing my name on you. God is writing His very name on you. In other words, He owns you, believer. God owns us. We are His possession forever. This is eternal security. This is what He's trying to get into their mind is this eternal security they have in Christ that's being questioned during their lifetime. God's name and then finally the name of the city of my God. I'm going to put it on there. That's citizenship. I'm a rightful citizen to heaven despite what the unbelieving Jews say. Despite what Rome says, legitimate citizens of the kingdom of God by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he ends this great promise by saying, which, uh, this new Jerusalem, the eternal heaven, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And then finally, he says, and you know what? I'm going to write my new name on you. Jesus already said he's going to give us a new name that nobody knows except you and Jesus, which means a personal one-on-one intimacy with Jesus himself for all eternity. And this is something different. He's going to write His new name on you. What is the new name of Jesus Christ? 
uh, I think it's just the fullness of Jesus Christ that you're going to realize in heaven that you don't realize now. We don't know Jesus Christ in His fullness. And that's what Peter said in his epistle. You believe in Jesus, although you have never seen Him. Has anybody here ever seen Jesus? Don't raise your hand. I have not. I have never seen Jesus. I've never seen a theophany. I've never seen Jesus in a vision. I've never seen Him physically. He's never come to my house. But I believe in Jesus. I don't know what He looks like because He's never revealed Himself. He's sitting on the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. That's what Scripture says. And He'll come again someday. But someday every believer... When you go into heaven, you will see Jesus in His fullness. Name speaks of identity. Name speaks of character. That means you're going to see, when Jesus says, My new name, you will see Jesus in his, the fullness of His glorious splendor like you've never seen before. That is the promise for the believer. That is the promise of the Christian. That is good news and that deserves an amen, doesn't it? Amen. Let's go ahead and close. Father, thank You for this great news. Good news. Nothing but good news for the church of Philadelphia, Lord. And they were a good church, not because uh, of their own strength or their own resources, but because of your grace, your mercy, and all the resources that you provided for them and the indwelling Holy Spirit of God that you gave them. And they, in return, were obedient. God, encourage us in light of the testimony of Philadelphia to be reminded that it is possible to be an obedient church and a faithful, loyal enduring church and we know that pleases you so by your grace by your mercy through the power of your holy spirit the truth of your word we pray that your hand of blessing and protection would be on gbf that we might reflect the good works of the church of philadelphia so you might be pleased and as a result be glorified we pray in your name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.